Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast, where we explore how to center our lives and our leadership in the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. In the midst of the disruptive cultural shockwaves of the 21st century. Join us as we learn to take the love of God seriously as the force that holds all of us and everything together. Ben, mm-hmm. I have a tragedy in my life. Oh my gosh, Christy, that's tell me about it. Well, it's all things pumpkin right now. That's right? the tragedy? I, no, I love oh, I see. I love pumpkins. I love yeah. everything pumpkin. Pumpkin oh. You know, candles, pumpkin spice latte, pumpkin right. decorations. Tis, tis the season. Yes, but I like got a pumpkin spice latte, which is like one of my favorites. <laughs> and then I got sick. Ooh. Like I had a stomach ache for the whole yes, day. Stomach ache from your favorite drink. And then I was like, okay, that is totally a fluke, right? Uh-huh. So the next week, guess what? What? I did it again to myself and I got sick again. Oh, is this man. just me getting old? Like I can't handle oh, yeah. like sugar Maybe. and coffee all in one thing. I don't know. So yeah. then I tried Dunkin' Donuts pumpkin spice and yeah. that wasn't any better. <laughs> I think it's like whatever <laughs> they put in like that, that pumpkin junk flavor. that they <laughs> the good junk that they put yeah. in there. I don't know. Um, maybe it has, you know, gluten in it. That's probably the thing. I'm it celiac. And now yeah. my body is like, no, no, no you Rejecting. really are celiac. Oh, yeah. man. Wow. I'm so sad. There's, there's a parable. There's some sort of sermon illustration or a parable in here somewhere, I'm sure. But I'm very sorry <laughs> to hear that you can't enjoy your I your favorite like things. Make a homemade one or something. I don't know. Anyway. I, I, there are, there are, yeah. I mean, as I get older, Christy, there are several of those things that I, I've had to just sort of acquiesce, yes. you know, where I... I remember, for example, the two things that come to mind are, I remember very distinctly when I had to start taking it easy when I played basketball. Because <laughs> I'm, right. I'm super intense, like in most things that I do. And so basketball was the same way. I was like, I'm going to play defense. I'm going to like hustle, you know, I'm going to. And um, I remember thinking like this, it, like there, there were a couple of things that, that happened uh, where I was just like, I have to, I have to relax. I have to. I have to let some people go on defense sometimes. Yep. I have to just, and this was when I was in my thirties and I was like, I have to be like the cagey veteran here on the mm. court and let the, <laughs> let the 20 somethings like, uh, kill themselves, you know, sprinting around. I'm just going to hang out by the three point line and I'll become, the, I'll become a three you. point shooter. There you go. Yeah. I am at a point where when I play pickleball now with my kids, uh-huh. All but one of my kids. Like I actually have to like really like it's a competition now. Right. Yeah. It's not like, you know, when you're a parent, you kind of like let your kids win sometimes. Right. Uh, Nope. Nope. We're not there anymore, people. Yeah. I I (laughs) I love getting to that point. I love getting to that point because I do like I do like competing. I like that. That's why it was hard to relax in basketball. 
Right. But I, you know, I, I remember too, I had to make a conscious uh, decision. Uh, this was only a few months ago that I can only have two cups of coffee in the morning. Yes. Like I really yep. like coffee mm-hmm. and, but it was like any more than two cups and it's sort of, I don't know, it's, it does weird stuff to my stomach. And, I, right. and so I was like, well, I just, that's as, this is my life now. I'm you know 47. what? Maybe it's yeah. that I got a grande pumpkin spice and I just oh, need maybe to go you, tall. You just maybe, maybe need just, to just bring it back. Just dial it yes. back a little bit. I'm going to try it this week, people. Okay. All right. <laughs> this sounds good. Uh, uh, but you have something fun coming up keep this you in week. Prayer. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Matt and I um, are going to be at the Apprentice Gathering in Wichita, which is uh, James Bryan Smith, who wrote all the Good and Beautiful God books. Um and kind of runs the Apprentice Gathering is kind of a spiritual formation focused um, conference uh, that they run every year in September. And so we were invited this year to come out um, and uh, talk <laughs> and do it. some stuff. So we're, we're, we're running an intensive on Thursday. I guess they've got like three hour intensives. So we're doing a three hour intensive twice for two different groups of people on Thursday on learning to love like Jesus, full of grace and truth. Um, which is uh, some of what we do in our in our training uh, yeah. that we that we call Gravity Leadership Academy. So we're going to do that on Thursday, and then we've got two workshops on Friday, which is uh, one of them is deals with our axiom about how God's love always reckons with power, mm-hmm. and the other one is going to be about um, well, it's called the missing ingredient in spiritual formation, or how to reckon with desire in discipleship. I can't remember what we called it, but but essentially we're going to be talking about that element of desire. What do we do with our wants, the things that we want? How do we deal with those in discipleship? Uh, because I think that's one of the, it's an undiscovered country. I think for a lot of us, we don't, we don't know what to do with our desires. Right. We, we either pretend um, they don't exist, right? Or... We pretend they don't exist or we like, we, we sort of try to kill them. We think that mm-hmm. desiring anything is bad unless I'm just, just desiring God um, to, <laughs> Right. It's the title of a book, right? Um, and so, so yeah, um, that's that's another part of our training. So anyway, we'll we'll and be out there. If people are like in, in Wichita, can they still sign up? Can they still come? You know what? Uh, the conference is completely sold out. No. Yeah. So um, okay. if you're already signed up and you're listening, uh, please look us up while you're there. Even if you're not coming to our workshops, um, we'll be around for uh, the you know most of the conference. And so it'd be great to see. Anybody who's out there. I know there's a few people in uh, the listening audience who are going to be there. And um, Or if you just happen to be in Wichita, you know, there might be some time to, even if you can't come to the conference, maybe we can have have lunch or coffee or something. For coffee. Yeah. For pumpkin spice latte. For pumpkin, right. <laughs> uh, just a tall though, not a Just grande. a tall. Uh-huh. Oh, man. All right. Well, yep. I can't wait so, to hear about it. Yeah. Yeah. Matt and I are going to be out there. And Matt's not with us today recording this intro because he's hiking. Uh, hiking. He's, yeah. he's incommunicado, uh, like hiking in the true wilderness. I can't remember Mount Whitney. I think they're, they're scaling he Mount Whitney me. on I the high Sierra that. trail. I yeah. feel like these words are not things that I just made up. I think, I think Matt said <laughs> those things, <laughs> but he'll be so, back next week with us. He will be, he will be back next week. Unless, you know, if, a, if he didn't get mauled by a bear on the trail oh my goodness. or something like that. That's Sorry, like a that's real a little, thing here in Colorado. I know it's a little it's more like a real deal, um, but. Anyway, yes, all uh, all joking aside, yeah, we'll be back together. Right. The band will be back together next week. Oh, uh, we should talk about this interview that we're doing because it's the beginning of kind of a little mini series. Yeah. So today we're talking with um, 
Dr. Laura Anderson, who is uh, who's written a book um, called When Religion Hurts You, Healing from Religious Trauma and the Impact of High Control Religion. Some interesting uh, phrases in there. And this was a super uh, interesting uh, interview because she, she deals with um, trauma. Um, I think she's a therapist. Yeah, she's a psychotherapist and a trauma resolution coach and a consultant. Um, and she deals with complex and developmental trauma, all kinds of stuff like that. But I, uh, one of the interesting things that we're um, focusing on, this is kind of the beginning of a little mini series. We're going to do two or three episodes all about trauma in general, but also specifically religious trauma, which is something that's just starting to be talked yeah. about. Um, so it's t- taking the traumas that maybe a lot of us are familiar with, you know, if an accident happens or, you know, something threatens our life or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but then there's also, you know, complex trauma where um, events uh, can sort of compound uh, and become uh, traumatic for us um, right. as they kind of compound on top of one another. And then religion and high, what she calls high control religion, like spirituality and our relationship with God and all that kind of stuff, that can actually be bound up in, you know, people's sense of trauma. And so yeah. it's really, it's become really important in my own like pastoral ministry for me to become aware of trauma how it works in people, how it works in me, mm-hmm. right? Because a lot of times uh, my trauma gets triggered when someone, you know, uh, wants to talk to me about, you know, especially if there's a criticism, you know, maybe of, of the yeah. church or a criticism of my leadership that can trigger, you know, something in me that makes me defensive and on, you know, not very open to that or, you know, other kinds of uh, responses like a fawn response, which is just like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, whatever you want, you know, from yeah. me is fine or that kind of thing. So, Anyway, super fascinating interview. Um, she's got a lot of good things to say about this. And so listeners, I hope if you have something that you might call religious trauma, that you'll um, find some benefit from listening to this interview and this, yeah. the rest of the series. Yeah. I don't know if it's in this interview or the next one, but I talked about like Denver Seminary is starting a whole trauma-informed ministry track Yeah, because of how important it is to talk about it, to be educated about it because yeah. as we interact with people or like you said yourself uh it's important to understand so anyway mm-hmm. it's a good right. conversation and let's get into it here we go Dr. Laura Anderson joins us today on the Gravity Leadership Podcast. She's a trauma-informed psychotherapist, founder of the Center for Trauma Resolution and Recovery, and co-founder of the Religious Trauma Institute. Her dissertation focused on healing after sexualized violence and trauma in connection with purity culture. Laura has written for Religious News Service and The New Republic, and she lives in Nashville, Tennessee, and is the author of the book we're discussing today, When Religion Hurts You, Healing from Religious Trauma, and the impact of high-control religion. Laura, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be here. Well, this is a book that um, I've wanted someone else to write for a long time, (laughs) Um, (laughs) because I find myself, Ben and I uh, co-pastor church together. Christy's a pastor at a church. Mm -hmm. We find ourselves uh, being religious professionals 
who in the last several years have come to understand that we don't know a lot of what we need to know uh, about how to care for people, how to lead organizations, um, and how to not unnecessarily or unintentionally inflict harm on others. So thank you so much for this book. I, I want to jump in right away with the title. Yes. Um, could you help us maybe give us a succinct definition of what is religious trauma? And in particular, how is trauma different than things like conflict or hardship or disagreements? Yeah, such a wonderful place to start. Um, I always like to talk about religious trauma first in the context of trauma. So in order to understand religious trauma, we have to understand trauma. So when I... the, uh, psychologically speaking, there's no nice little package, succinct definition for trauma. But the way I describe it is that it is the uh, anything that is too much, too fast, too soon that overwhelms our ability to cope and come back to a, a sense of normalcy and safety. And so what that means in layman's terms is that trauma is not the thing that happens to you. It's not a belief. It's not an experience. It's not a thing. But it's the way that our body or nervous system responds to what happens happens to us, which means that trauma is subjective. So what is traumatic for you may or may not be for me and vice versa. It is perceptive, meaning that uh, the, there does not need to be an actual threat in front of you. It could be the perception or the memory of threat. And it is embodied, which means that we can't think it away. It lives inside of our bodies. Mm. And so that is also how we work with trauma resolution, which we'll probably talk about later. Um, and so then when we add the word religious on there, religious is a sort of an adjective that gives us a bit of a descriptor of the context or the origin of where that trauma resulted from, similar to how we might say developmental trauma, trauma from war, sexualized trauma, things like that, where the trauma piece is the same in terms of the, the nervous system aspect, but how we deal with it in terms of the recovery process might be a little bit different based on the context that we're coming out of. The things I work on with my clients may be very different than somebody who works with a veteran for, from war because we're dealing with some different uh, triggers and, and responses and things like that. So the way that it's different then from church hurt or harm or conflict or disagreement um, it is trauma is an embodied experience. It's how our nervous system responds to things. Now, disagreement and harm and hurt can absolutely contribute to that. But I think that in and of itself, we would not necessarily say that disagreement is so overwhelming, too much, too fast, too soon, that it, it kind of overrides our ability to cope and return to a sense of normalcy. Over time, if we have continual disagreement where there's disparaging comments and there's isolation and disconnection as a result of that, we might look at something more like trauma, depending on the person's experience. Um, but we might look at like disagreement as a thing that happens. Um, and then how our body and nervous system responds to that gives us a little bit more insight into uh, what we might need in order to come back to a place of safety. Yeah. So somebody two people could experience the same event and one yes. person's body stores it as trauma and the other person's body doesn't. Yes, that's correct. Mm. Yeah. And there's a lot of extenuating circumstances or uh, things that are going on that are not necessarily within our control. What contributes to it being trauma or not, or resulting in trauma or not, is going to be everything from DNA, environmental context, access to safety and support, how things were responded to in the moment, genetic components. Um, and so, yes, um, you know, I think about how 
my siblings and I, we all grew up in the same home with the same messages and the same experiences, but how messages landed on one of my siblings may have been different than how it landed on and embodied, or I embodied it. And so how it was stored then was very different, including the response and how we lived within that. Yeah. Laura, I'm curious if you could tell us just a bit about how you became interested in these two things of, of religion and trauma. And and I guess really I'm I'm kind of saying, are there parts of your story that you feel comfortable sharing with us? Yeah, I'm very comfortable sharing any parts of my story. So any questions are welcome. But truly, my interest professionally does stem from my own personal experiences and story and process of healing. Well, my mm. lived experience of healing because it's still ongoing. Sure. Um yeah. And so I think that because of how I grew up and um, really the lack of resources or even language I had to understand what happened to me um, really kind of inspired me wanting to be able to provide those resources for others in a variety of different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, you, in your subtitle, you, you sort of indicate one of the sources or causes of trauma, which is a high control environment or high control religious environment. I wonder if you could, and you call, you call them, um, adverse religious experiences, right? Mm -hmm. Could you, could you give, uh, us some examples or illustrations of what a high control environment, like what, what are some of the things people do in high control environments? How can we learn to identify that? Yeah. So sometimes high control environments are difficult to, um, to identify because, you know, there's some overt things that we can see where it's like, we're trying to control everybody's time, money, resources, um, those sorts of things. But there's a lot of other more subtle things that are maybe stemming from specific theologies, doctrines, practices. It could be everything from here is how you must live out your sexuality. Here is how your finances must be spent. Um, here's how you can respond to adversity and conflict. Um, you know, calling, I, I think this is a name, like calling people names, like in the abo- emotional abuse realm of, um, when you're calling people sinners, worthless, they can do no good, um, they're inherently evil. Those are things that are um, scratching at our you know, internal value, our inherent worthiness. And when that's happening over time, we begin to believe those messages about ourselves. Uh, it could be things like isolation. There's a lot of religions, religious groups, systems that would say, here's the people you can spend time with. Here's the people you can't spend time with. Here's the information you have access to. Don't listen to these other people. So we've got a little bit of information control. Um, It usually comes out in the daily practices, what's required in order to be a true believer, in order to be a, you know, somebody who's worthy of God, Christ, you know, calling themselves a Christian or whatever the title is of that religion. And so a high control religion is going to be one that is very much dictating every aspect of your life with severe consequences if you don't follow those prescribed rules. It's also very hierarchical. So you've got one person or group of people at the top of the the ladder per se that are describing what life must look like for everybody else and are also uh, deciding what the consequences are if you don't live up to that. Mm. Yeah. Ben, I wonder uh, if I can uh, pull you in here. Like, 
<laughs> what Laura's describing sounds like most of the churches I've ever been to, you know, like this, this doesn't seem like you yeah. have to have, be in an occult uh, or a weird religious environment to experience some of this stuff. Yeah. I, I mean, this, this gets at a question that I'm sort of noodling on. I'm trying to figure out how to ask it and, you know, maybe it'll become clear to me later, but yeah, it does describe, I think a lot of religious environments, um, the definition of maybe what it has meant to be faithful has almost equaled high control. That, that like for like for us as leaders, like to, to be faithful is to you know is to control, is to uh, to tell people what to do. And then I think a lot of people have felt that that is also I should ask the pastor what I should do. You know, with my life. You know, in this regard or that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. Maybe you could uh, nuance that a little bit more for us because it does. I think this is, it's, it's helpful to maybe reckon with this uncomfortable truth that a lot of churches are, you know, these, these kinds of high control, um, environments. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. Say a bit more about it. Yeah. You know, I don't know if this is the question you're asking or just where I'm going with it, but you know, one of the things that I think about is like, how do we know if something is high control or not? And Mm -hmm. what I would say is what happens when there is disagreement or when somebody leaves or when somebody says, this is who I am, I'm showing up this way. Is there space for that, for autonomy and individuality? Or is it such that you have to follow this prescribed set of rules and practices in order to be included or a true believer or you know what whatever it is to be a part of that group? Mm-hmm. And so that's usually how I go about saying, you know, oh, is this a high control group? Is this a high? Well, what happens if you want to leave? What is the response or what happens in the midst of conflict? And so I think that you're right. There are different characteristics that could be a part of perhaps any religion. And and maybe that's a bigger conversation to have in terms of, you know, what is religion and and how do we kind of play that out? Maybe a little bit more than what we can do today, but but I think that's a start. I I think that's really helpful for me because I I think, you know, um, it sounds to me like there's there's a difference between a high control environment and an environment that has, I mean, every community has to have certain boundaries to it, right? Like what does it mean to belong here? But I think there's ways of creating the parameters of belonging that aren't necessarily high control um, where, where there is freedom for people to show up, you know, at least within certain boundaries, you you can't show up and say, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to show up and call y'all names and, you know, like, and, and sort of, uh, demand that you, uh, you know, listen to me shout during every, you know, worship service. I'm saying something ridiculous just to kind of point out mm-hmm. the fact that, you know, every community has boundaries, but I think that that's helpful. I think a distinction of, of saying what happens when, what happens when you sort of go outside the prescribed, uh, definition of, you know, what it means to belong to this community. Is there kind of a, a punishment there or, or mm-hmm. something different happening? Yeah. It's fascinating. And now, a word from a sponsor. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. All right, let's get back into our conversation. You do have a whole chapter on healthy boundaries, Laura, Mm -hmm. and so maybe this is a good chance to, to pull that out, because I do think... Um, I, I don't think anybody listening wants to be a high controlling person that causes trauma or inflicts mm-hmm. trauma or right. contributes mm-hmm. to trauma. I don't think any of us, 
They, those people may exist, but the high <laughs> majority of people who end up being in, in charge of high control environments don't really want that. They just find it uh, unfortunately like unavoidable because they don't know what a healthy relationship is or a healthy system, how it works. So could maybe you um, help delineate for us what's the difference in setting healthy boundaries with other people versus controlling other people? Yeah. I would say that setting healthy boundaries is about me (laughs) and like being able to come into a situation in a way that I can feel safe. Um, but it's on me, it's on me to do that. It's Mm -hmm. not dependent on you. Now it would be great if everybody could say, Hey, here's my boundary, please respect it. And we go, okay, that's great. And we can all, you know, do that. Sometimes that's not feasible for a variety of reasons because we just have different experiences. Controlling behavior like you said, seeks to control others. And boundaries can sometimes, I always say in the beginning of a healing process, boundaries often sound like rules and controlling, like here's how what you have to do in order to engage with me. Yeah. Um, and so I think healthy boundaries say, hey, I understand what I need to feel safe. It is my responsibility to do that, to communicate it when necessary, and to take care of myself and provide myself that safety. If I'm somebody who cannot be we'll, we'll use this. I, I use this with clients, like somebody who can't be around others who maybe drink alcohol, then that's on me to not show up at the bar, to Mm. say no, to not put myself in, in situations or to have a way to be able to remove myself from situations. If I'm feeling uncomfortable, that's not your job to never have alcohol again, um, in my presence, unless we've made that agreement. Yeah. And so, yeah. So healthy boundaries are coming from what do I, I need so that I can be in relationship with you. Whereas rules are, here's what I need you to do so that I feel okay. Yes. Super helpful. It is helpful. I was talking to a friend today who she was telling me that one of the, um, one of the artifacts of her family system growing up was that, uh, you couldn't, um, ask for what you wanted because that was selfish. So I, I, I know you probably run into this, Laura. Uh, this is mm-hmm. like there's different systems where it's uh, selfish to have needs. You're not supposed to have, you're not supposed to tell other people what you want. You, and you're actually, it flips around. You're supposed to guess what people want and give it to them so they don't have to ask. Mm-hmm. Um, can you speak a bit to, because it strikes me as uh, that's a high controlling environment, a passive aggressively or maybe codependently mm-hmm. high controlling environment. And mm-hmm. It's incredibly hard for people who grow up in that environment to set boundaries because not only does that feel selfish, but we're not really in touch with what we need. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I would say, too, within so many high control religions, exactly what you're saying, Matt, is going, I I have to expect and anticipate what it is that you need. The hope is that other people would do that for us too, but it almost never works that way. And it's always this constant giving, over-giving, over-anticipating, which I believe to be a nervous system response. Some people might call it a trauma response, but I believe it's a nervous system response of fawning. And so when we look at that, that's actually a survival mechanism of going, there's some activation that's going, I'm not safe here. In order to be safe, I can engage in these behaviors, in this case, fawning. So pleasing, appeasing, submitting, ingratiating yourself to somebody else so that they are okay, even if it's at the expense of you, because I believe on a very deep subconscious level that this is what will make 
me be safe. It will keep me surviving in this situation. And I think for a lot of folks, especially women, other marginalized folks, children, that fawning response in particular is extremely prevalent in high control religions. It's the way that we survive within them. And in fact, many religions would teach, especially for those who identify or socialize female, um, that is your duty is to do that, that, that submissive role. And so we, we see how that can become even more controlling. Yeah. Yeah. That's well said. And that's unfortunately experienced by a lot of women, mm-hmm. um, within yeah. high controlled religious environments. You, uh, talked about the nervous system and I would love to double click on that because I, I feel like, uh, we need to hear more about this, right? Um, Our bodies respond. And so I'm curious to hear from you, how does religious trauma show up in our bodies? Mm. Um, As you've studied this and, and even experienced it, like school us a little bit on this. (laughs) Sure. So like we said at the beginning, religious trauma is trauma. So it's going to show up in our bodies very similarly to how other trauma might. That might be an overactive nervous system. So that hypervigilance, always on guard, ready to fight, running away. It might show up in more of that frozen state or like we're talking about fawning, pleasing and appeasing. Very similar to other, um, other people that are traumatized by other things. Over time, that can look like various symptoms psychologically, you know, depression, anxiety, OCD, relational issues, physiological issues such as autoimmune disorders, gastrointestinal issues, other chronic and um, chronic disease and pain, things like that. Um, and and so now I'm forgetting your question. Um, <laughs> so the nervous system, right? <laughs> Yeah, you're answering it. I mean, okay. part of me, like, I mean, it, it's probably different for each person. At least that's been my sure. experience as I've talked yeah. to different people, right? Mm-hmm. Some person might feel like a tightness in their chest and like a shaking sensation or something like that. And, mm-hmm. you know, other people are going to have different sensations. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. And I am curious to hear maybe as you continue on your healing journey, as I continue healing on my journey, um, I have found that the sensations of trauma are less and less. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, it's like something to celebrate. Mm-hmm. I recently found myself in a, in a situation where I was going to be around people um, that were involved in a, a, a really traumatic time in my life. And um, and I had boundaries. I had talked to my husband, like, if this happens, we're going to leave. If this, you know, whatever. And, and, and I've thought through, I'd done breathing exercises, all of this. But then I went to the event and my body was calm. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah. oh, my gosh. Like, this is amazing. And I I told my therapist, I'm like, good job. You you, <laughs> you really helped me out here. <laughs> um, I'm just wondering, is that what you found even in your research um, mm-hmm. as people heal from religious trauma? Uh, is there less and less nervous system reaction? I would say on a very general level, yes, but it's going to differ from person to person. And this might be a technical thing, but I believe that religious trauma most closely associates with what we might consider complex trauma or complex PTSD, CPTSD. So when I'm working with clients with that diagnosis or kind of that presentation, what we're looking at is what I call integration. So that means that 
for many people coming out of high control religions or that are experiencing religious trauma, there may not be one big specific event that they can point to and say, it was this time. It was, mm-hmm. it was this experience with this person and that's where everything changed. For so many of us, it's these what we might consider smaller everyday things, whether it's through the messaging, the practices, the relationships that are building on each other over time that are often inescapable. So there's, especially if you're a child, there's nowhere you can go. You can't fight back against it. And so that's where we start to get a more complex trauma where we go, there's, a lot of things in our everyday life that may be emotional flashbacks and triggers and stuff like that. And so we simply cannot go back and and go through every single thing that may have triggered us because A, we just don't know where we could be triggered until we're triggered sometimes. Um, and B, there's just the quantity, the magnitude, right? And so we're looking at what we would call integration. So in this case, we go, hey, I know that there's this situation that has the potential to be extremely triggering to me. So what are the resources that I can grab as I'm going into this situation so that I'm setting myself up for the the best possible outcome? And if I'm triggered, I have resources. I have some skills. I have connection and support that I can use so that I can have a different outcome. And that's what the integration piece is. It's not that we won't get triggered because we will. It's that when we are triggered, we have access to other resources and support so that we can create a different ending and make different choices. And that's what I find to be so important when we're talking about religious trauma and that healing process. That's well said. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I noticed too, Chrissy, just in your story, how empowering you were, like how empowered mm-hmm. you were to take agency over your body, to ask for what you needed, to make a plan about what to do if I get triggered or reactive or dysregulated. Like, and all of that is like, you know, hopefully. I think in a perfect world, we learn that as kids, right? We have parents who t- teach us how to do that. We have a safe environment where that's just second nature. But yeah. so much of healing from trauma is reparenting ourselves, mm-hmm. right? Yes, yeah. yes. So much yes, of it's it. Give, it's getting getting or giving ourselves the things that we should have gotten back then, but we did not have access to yeah. for whatever reason. And that's not to blame all parents or say, oh, you did such a bad job. I, I actually believe that most parents are doing the best they can and truly desire the best, right? Sure. It's just sometimes that we have different needs. Every child is different. Every child experiences things different. And mm-hmm. so, so much of that resolution process is being able to go back to give ourselves the thing that we needed back then and, and that might be through the rest of our lives. We always have to have a little bit of extra awareness around these types of things. And we go, okay, mm-hmm. I might, I might need that extra support and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's how I, that's what I would say is living in a healing body mm-hmm. is that we just go, okay, here's the moment that is in front of me and I am going to use my skills. Um, and I call those moments that you had Christy, like the experience of healing, like I'm living in the healing right now. Like, Oh my gosh, I'm feeling it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And I want our listeners to know that's possible because Mm -hmm. I know in the middle of it, I didn't even have an imagination for that kind of healing to be true of my life. Mm -hmm. And so to hear you talk about it, hopefully to hear my example of it, our listeners can have an imagination for, Mm -hmm. for what can be true for them too. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, I think that, that, that that question that was uh, threatening to come out, I think it's starting to come out. So we'll see how this goes. (laughs) Um, (laughs) 
But um, so I, I like how you described like healing from trauma. You recognize that you have to give yourself something that you didn't receive. Mm-hmm. I think one of the one of the questions I have then is how as leaders. So if we, you know, like we're all pastors here, as Matt said earlier. Um, I've had multiple experiences in pastoral ministry where the person who is coming to me, I think is being triggered by something that I did, right? As a pastor, or just the fact that I'm a pastor, right? Triggers mm-hmm. them because, that, you know, because they, they got hurt uh, in, in their past. But they're not recognizing that they need to give themselves what they need, right? They're, they're, they're coming with some kind of demand mm-hmm. that I... Mm-hmm conform to, you know, behavior that, that doesn't trigger them essentially. Mm-hmm. And I, I have struggled to know how to respond because I want to care well for this person, but I also recognize that like they often are making an unreasonable demand. They don't realize that they're triggered or that they have a response to their triggering. That's not empowering for them. It's, it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's disempowering because they need the whole world to sort of, you know, be a certain way for them to not get triggered and be okay. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I think my question is like how, how to care for someone who is mm-hmm. in that state. If I'm, if I'm talking with a person like that, I don't know if you have any suggestions. Yeah. It's, it's not dissimilar from a therapist in a session with a client who's triggered and activated. Okay. Um, and so from, for me, um, when I notice that a client is triggered, which I can usually sense from bodily cues, shifts in tone and voice and hand movements and all the things, right? Mm-hmm. My job is to keep myself regulated first, okay. right? So I I do what I need to do to say, okay, I'm present. I'm here in this room. Because sometimes it can feel like they're coming at you, like they're <laughs> blaming you for this stuff, right? Yeah. And so then if they're triggered and then they're triggering me and then we're back, we're in this battle of like, you know, try, almost like duking it out. Right. So my responsibility then is what do I need as a therapist or in your case, the pastor to stay rooted in this moment and to be present, to calm my own nervous system so that I can use my nervous system to help them regulate theirs yeah. mm-hmm. because we're not going to solve a problem from activation. There's yeah. no space for that because we're in that space of survival. Right. So I, you know, so one of the things we learned, like we're talking about is that self-regulation, yes. but we are beings that are created for relationship. And so that idea of co-regulation is so amazing. And that is ideally what parents would be able to give their children at least 30% of the time um, <laughs> so that children can experience that. Yeah. In some cases, we don't have access to that, but that does not, that need for co-regulation does not go away as we age. And especially when we're talking about trauma, those moments can be emotionally corrective where I'm triggered and I'm in front of this person and they are able to stay present with me and help get me back into this space and get me, my family back on the ground and navigate that with me so that then we, my prefrontal cortex can turn back on and I can say, okay, what I'm really needing is this, or what really bothered me is this, or how can we troubleshoot, brainstorm, be creative and curious? How can I offer compassion, right? When we are in that triggered state, the only thing that we're concerned about is survival. And so we can't, there's Curiosity and survival don't go together. Creativity and survival don't go together. Compassion and survival don't go together. So we first are looking for, can I take care of myself, right? My first job, can I can I make sure I'm here? And then how can I use my nervous system to help 
regulate the other person's nervous system so that we can come back into this space and then move forward. And that I know is probably easier said than done Um, (laughs) because it can be really hard, but, but you're, you're basically asking them to match you rather than you matching them. And then we're in this battle for who's the more activated one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's really helpful. Um, and you're right. It is easier said than done because I, I was just thinking about how, um, how easy it is to get as a, as again, as, as a pastor, as a leader, and maybe our listeners can relate to this in, you know, various aspects of their lives, but how easy it is to get regulated into. And I immediately thought of like specific situations where I would go into fight, flight, or fawn, mm-hmm. you know, really easily, you know, flight is just like, get me out of here as fast as possible. I want to, mm-hmm. you know, let's end the meeting you know, fawn is like, I'm just going to conform to whatever behavior you are expecting of me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then fighting, of course, is just defending myself and saying, well, you know, I'm not the one who hurt you. Um, mm-hmm. But it's it's interesting, I guess, to hear you um, say that, that that sort of self-regulation is just a, is just a key part of this. And so that's, mm-hmm. that's super helpful for me. So Yeah. Yeah. Laura, I, I noticed a couple things I want to name that I think are just crucial and vital for to do what you just described. The first is to have self-awareness, to know when we're dysregulated. Mm-hmm. Like, what is that? What does it feel like? How do I know I'm dysregulated or out of sorts or reactive? You know, and I feel like a lot of us, a lot of us, this is part of partly how I think um, religion can become toxic. Some of us were taught that to think about yourself or focus on yourself was evil. And mm-hmm. so we don't even pay attention to how we're doing right? Mm-hmm. And we live cut off from our bodies. I want to talk about emotions in a second. Uh, live cut off from our body, cut off from our emotions. And so we, we've practiced not being self-aware for so long that we have mm-hmm. to reclaim our bodies as a place yes. of agency. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, to use a, when I, when I say dominion, I mean like, no, I, I can, no one's going to take control of me, but me. So mm-hmm. I need to take that seriously. Right. Yes. Um, the second thing is, to know how to soothe ourselves. Mm-hmm. No one ever taught me how to calm myself down. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which is why I played video games and ate food and drank booze. You know what I'm saying? Like that's yes. how I calmed down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's normal. That's, I mean, you got to go to something. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think, I think sometimes I wish that pacifiers were still, you know, okay for adults because frankly, yeah. Yeah. Of all the uh, pathologies I've invented to soothe myself, you know, sucking on a piece of plastic is probably yes. a lot healthier, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so self-awareness and then knowing how to calm oneself. And then the mm-hmm. third thing you were saying, you know, I think um, the medical, uh, the thera- therapeutic world has various ways of talking about this. One author I like calls it being a resonating witness. Mm. Like, and, and you talked about how we are created for relationship. Like when we are simply able to connect with somebody who's dysregulated in very simple ways, reflecting back what you're hearing, mm-hmm. right? Saying, I, communicating, I see you, you're safe with me. Thank you for sharing that, right? And, you know, we don't have to, don't have to use that language. But 50% of the problem goes away, usually, yes. right? Unless we're dealing mm-hmm. with a psychotic break. 50% mm-hmm. of the problem goes away. I don't know if that's, mm-hmm. I, I, I'll have to check the research on those stats, but I, it's, it's a lot of the problem goes away. I don't know mm-hmm. if you have things, thoughts mm-hmm. about those three things and how, I don't know how, how important they are. And if I'm missing other components of what you said. No, I, I think on a, on a pretty 
general level, that's right. You know, our our nervous systems operate in the service of our survival 24-7. And what can set our nervous systems off into those spaces of fight and flight and fawn mm-hmm. and freeze mm-hmm. are things like disconnection, having my autonomy or agency taken away from me, um, feeling like I'm, you know, threatened or being accused of things. And so when we can, yes, like come back and try to reconnect and to say, you are valid. I do hear you. You are an autonomous being. Of course, we can use different words than that, but playing into those really core innate human needs so that they are feeling like, okay, I can be in this space safely. I don't, there, there is no real or perceived threat, you know, in front of me that does then invite us into a more curious space where relationship and connection can happen. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd, I'd like to maybe turn our attention and as we uh, as we look at the the last part of this interview towards some of the characteristics of what a of what a healing person on the healing journey looks like. Um, mm-hmm. And you have a chapter on like reclaiming the full spectrum of our emotions. Um, mm-hmm. Now, Christy is writing a dissertation. I got a big on, smile on my face. On emotional intelligence and our spirituality. Ooh, I love it. Um, so love it. So in that, you talk about, you know, anger and reclaiming, uh, like moving towards, this is my language, not distancing ourselves from our hearts, but moving towards our hearts. Could you say mm-hmm. a bit about how, why reclaiming a robust spectrum of emotions is is part of healing and why it's important? Yeah, I can't speak for every religion and what their messages, overt or covert, are around emotions. But in so many cases, the emotions are vilified while the mind is, you know, the kind of crowning glory. Like we we move up into our heads and we want to think. And in my experience, emotions often tell a very different story than what mere words can tell. And and I'm not, I don't want to say, oh, only go with your emotions. Like we do need a balance. Like emotions are pieces of information. They're not facts, right? Mm -hmm. They're feelings, not facts. And I think we need to remember that. But I think when we are in high control religion, vilifying emotions means we're cutting ourselves off from our bodies. We're, we're, the, the language of emotion is found in our bodies. And so if we can vilify bodies, vilify our emotions, it allows us to be more easily controlled and we're up in our heads and it's all about thinking, right? And how do we you know communicate things? It's not about connecting to ourselves. And so I think there is something extremely important then when we talk about developing that robust spectrum of emotions, we're reintroducing ourselves to something that is already within us, but that has been cut off, that allows us to kind of be a full and vibrant self. And so I think that's extremely important when we are healing from religious trauma. Now, this is not my own original idea. I think I heard this from Queen Brene Brown, um, who is like (laughs) so great at talking about it. Yeah, exactly. You know, one of the things she said in in one of her talks, she said, you know, you don't get to pick and choose which emotions you feel. Like you either are going to feel all of them or none of them. We're not going to just feel the positive, light, enjoyable ones. We in we have to feel all of them. But if we're willing to feel the dark, heavy, intense emotions, yeah. it makes the light ones, the the you know, inspiring ones that much better. I think about 
the reason I can feel joy is because I understand the feeling of pain, right? Mm-hmm. And because I have both experiences. Yeah. And so um, I think it's really important then coming back to this development of emotions that we're really <laughs> coming into our full created being yeah. when when we're in that space. Um, when we talk about, yeah, being a full creation of God, we need our emotions then. To cut that off is cutting off a very important inherent part of us. And I, I think it's just, it's really an important piece of this process. And also emotions just like, they make life so much more fun and colorful mm-hmm. and vibrant and um, just enjoyable to be in. Now, it does make life more intense, right? Um, and we do have to learn how to express emotions in appropriate and healthy ways. Um and that does take time. That is not always easy, right? When you're unpracticed at feeling anger and expressing anger, that's where we can get really destructive behaviors. Mm-hmm. That, but but we have to remember that we're anger is not a quote unquote bad emotion. How we express it could be healthy or unhealthy, and that's true of any emotion, of course. But I think that's part of this process of developing the robust spectrum of emotion is like tiptoeing in little kind of drop by drop into what is it like to let myself feel sad? Okay. And then I'm going to come out of that. What is it like to feel this? And, and letting ourselves grow a tolerance for being able to feel various emotions um, and then express them in ways that are safe and, and honoring to our own experience as well. We'll be right back. The Gravity Podcast is sponsored by the Gravity Formation Course. Our 12-month cohort-based training in practical spiritual formation, where you'll learn how to notice how God is already at work in your life so you can participate more fully in the life that God shares with us. It is a discipleship process that goes beyond just gaining more knowledge and trying out some new practices. In the Gravity Formation course, we go below the surface of our lives so that we can notice and name our deepest desires in God's presence and to discern how God is at work in those desires to lead us toward holistic flourishing, more transformation, more life, more joy, more love. We've trained hundreds of people from all over the world in this formation framework, and it's helped many people to have a sense of God at work in their lives and learn to be more at home in God's love. If you'd like to learn more, go to gravitycommons.com slash formation. Let's get back to the show. Would you say, Laura, that in these religious, toxic environments, that leaders are, if they, if they could learn emotional intelligence, they could practice a robust spectrum of emotions and, and live into fully who they are, but being able to express them, that that would be a step, right, towards healing, towards building a system and cultures that are not abusive, I mean, would you contribute that to like one of those healing steps? I do think so. Um, I think that if, (laughs) I think that if that is preached from the top down, Mm -hmm. a lot of things will change very quickly because the real, the realization of people's lived experiences will have to take a greater precedent than maybe a theology or a doctrine that has been previously kind of this is what we stand upon. Um, but I do think that if there was room for the entirety of an individual to show up 
like their emotions, mm-hmm. it would shift things. And mm-hmm. and it would be very difficult at first, I think. I mean, I think anytime we change anything, of course, that's going to be difficult. Um, but especially when we're talking about bringing in areas that have traditionally been vilified and maybe mm-hmm. even told that they're sinful, yeah. um, that it's very difficult because we're, the likelihood of swinging from one end of the spectrum to the other or one end of the pendulum to the other and having overly emotional and yep. that's all that matters and, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. it's pretty high. That's pretty normal. And and it takes a while to come back into that space of balance. It is possible. Um, but but I think it, if we could do it in an intentional way, I think we would see some pretty amazing changes. Yeah. 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 I had a I had a congregant come up to me two weeks ago, Laura, and say, "We need to talk about sex." <laughs> like, yes, <laughs> and then I, gra- I grabbed all of us do. <laughs> I grabbed two other people and like pulled them over. And I think, um, you know, I I think many of our listeners and this person in particular kind of grew up in, in a purity culture. Sort of, if I can use mm-hmm. a really caricatured general fra- uh, phrase that communicates maybe too much or not enough to some people, but in general, we kind of all know what we're talking about when we say purity culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I I wonder, I think this is like such a tender topic for people because our, uh, not only because environments can be abusive or traumatic when they try to control bodies and mm-hmm. that kind of thing, but also we carry around so many questions and and shame uh, sexually. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, mm-hmm. what have you learned about some of the artifacts of a healthier environment? You, you, mm-hmm. Your chapter's on reclaiming sexuality. So what, mm-hmm. what would that look like? One or two steps towards that if we're coming out of this a more uh, abusive purity culture uh, frame? Mm-hmm. I think that to begin with, the first thing to recognize is that we are inherently through and through from the moment we are born sexual beings. And being a sexual being does not only equal sexual experiences and activities. It is the essence of who we are. And if that is part of who we are, that means it is good. It does not need to be vilified in the ways that so many religious systems vilify it. Um, because it again, it similar to emotions. It's going back and saying, "Well, you know, God created all these things, and they are good, but oh, except for emotions and and sex, sexuality, everything like that." Right. So all of a sudden, we're actually putting limitations around God and God's creation that are not going to be helpful. And they really cause us then as humans to have to fragment ourselves in exactly what you're saying, Matt, is live from a place of deep shame. So if we can start to understand that not like that we are sexual beings from the, the moment that we are born, that's our essence and that it is good, like I think that changes a lot of things. And I think to not conflate uh, sex and, you know, um, sexual activity (laughs) as like, this is just what it is. Like that can be really helpful too. I think about how, you know, sex involves sexual activity, but it also drives the way that we operate in the world, how we view ourselves and others, how social issues are addressed, how policy and legislation is created. Um, There's so much more than a physical act with yourself or between one or more people. That's one aspect of our sexuality. So I think to limit it to just this little one, actually, actually, this little part limits 
again, this, this huge part of who we are and to be able to celebrate that and to say, this is part of who we were created to be. Now that does not mean we couldn't put some parameters around it and to say, here's some healthy ways we could grow into this, that we could express this. Here's safe ways to do this. Here's consent. Like we need to have all those conversations, but we have to start with the fact that this is a good thing and this is part of who we are created to be. And if we don't have that, then, then we get what we've gotten purity culture. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, which is a high controlling environment that reduces our sexuality to what happens when people uh, touch their Mm -hmm. genitals together. Right. Like, (laughs) yes. And and, and I think what you just said is pretty radical that, um, so first of all, we're sexual creatures from the moment we're born. I think a lot of people Mm -hmm. are just like so hyper concerned about the sexualization of children. But, Mm -hmm. but again, we're thinking about sexuality in that purely sort of hormone limited sort of intercourse way rather than what does it mean to be, what does it mean to have sexuality as a part of our being? Like, what does that Mm -hmm. actually mean? And I don't know speaking as a Christian, I don't know if I've got any Christian resources to answer that question because it's Mm -hmm. never asked. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? No, it's not. (laughs) Yeah. It's so interesting. I don't know if you've read Linda K. Klein's book, uh, Pure, but she interviews some pastors who kind of were in the purity culture movement back in the 90s or so. One of them happened to be a pastor I grew up with and knew on a personal level because of the camp I grew up at that my dad was a director at. And he said, you know, I knew that purity culture was not like what we needed to be teaching because it was so reductive and so rigid and all these things, but we had no other resources. Nothing better, nothing else. And so we went into this in this way, you know, and, um, and I remember him saying that was so profound for me because he was such a person of influence in my life that to hear him say, no, we knew that this was wrong. We just didn't have any other resources. That was very powerful to hear. Um, and so I, I think you're you're right. There's there isn't a lot that that talks about sexuality, right? Anything yeah. beyond this very prescriptive, limited little box. Yeah, Christy and I were talking today about this. Mm-hmm. Like we both have teenagers. She's got a 16 year old. I got a 15 year old, and we want desperately to have something for our, in our case, uh, boys, something more than no, don't stop. You know, something more yes. than just sort of like policing their. Um, their hormones, but, Mm -hmm. but what we, what's, it feels like we're almost having to make it up as we go. Yeah. Yeah. There is that. There's a couple, there are a couple resources that I really, really like. Um, one of them, I can never remember if it's like the universalist church or the Unitarian church or universalist Unitarian, right? There's okay. Too many U's, right? (laughs) Uh, they have a a curriculum called our whole lives or owl O W L. And it is a comprehensive sex education curriculum that literally goes from the time you're born till the time you die, all these different sexual development stages. And I've really enjoyed that as well as a website called scarletine.com. And the, 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 person who started that organization, Heather Corinna, wrote a book and it's for people in their like 20s, but I was like, oh, I need to read this because I didn't read, you know, get any of this. And it goes through everything from consent, gender, sexuality, uh, you know, 
protection, contraception, all these things, you know, like how do we talk about this? How do we think about this? How do we discuss this? And and those are some really great resources. But in terms of it coming from a faith-based perspective, I think the Our Whole Lives one does a little bit, but there this is not a conversation that's happening within the church. Yeah. which means there's not going to be resources. You know, there's yeah. a couple outliers that started to talk about things. Uh, Nadia Boltz Weber um, wrote a great book called Shameless. And there's, you know, some here or there, but there there aren't a lot of resources. And so I do have so much empathy and compassion because I'm like, yeah, people, we're trying to solve a problem with nothing, mm-hmm. no resources. And and as the adults, we're probably trying to figure this out for ourselves oh, yeah, too, right? <laughs> Yeah. So quick, how do I learn this from me so I can teach it to my kid in a different way? Yeah. And, and that's hard. That's yeah. really difficult. Yeah, yep. it sure is. That's why um, mm-hmm. Chris and I decided to send our kids over to Ben's house. And just <laughs> Ben's going to sit Ben's going to school yep. them. Mm. Yes. <laughs> Get ready, but Ben. I, yeah. I would say this. Like, I know, I know that... You know, it would be so nice to have um, like a book that says this is how you talk to your kids about yeah. sex in this really comprehensive way. And I think that there will be resources eventually that come out. But what I think is even more important is the connection that you have with your child and the willingness to have conversations. Nothing is off the table. That's there, right. And being mm-hmm. able to be open and to say, oh, gosh, that makes me uncomfortable, or I don't know the answer to that, or let's find this out together. Let's talk about this. Okay, it's weird for me that you think differently than I do, but we can have this conversation. And more than any curriculum, I would say that is what's going to be helpful for your children because we didn't get that. So many of us, it was like, there's this very, here's your prescription. You learn about it at youth group. You don't talk about it with your parents. I mean, I'm 41 years old. I've still not had the birds and the bees talk with my mother because she cannot get it out. She's Mm. too embarrassed. Right. And so, um, I figured it out for myself, but we're, you know, we're good there, but, um, But I think that ability to have dialogue and for your children to trust you and to know that my parent allows me to ask them anything and they don't get mad at me and I don't get punished for asking questions and they can be the first person that I go to when I'm scared about something or when I have a confusion or whatnot. Um, I think that's incredible. I had an experience once where I was at a friend's pool and, um, she had three sons. They were, uh, the youngest one was 16 and he had had sex the first time a couple days before we, before my friend and I were at the pool. And we were like, how do you know that? And she's like, oh, well, my son told me and he asked me to go to the store and buy him these products. And we were like, what? And she said, yes, I've taught my kids that this is what they need to do, that I will support them. I'm, I would rather help them be protective than, you know, and proactive than reactive. Mm. And so they know that they can ask me these things and we'll talk about it. We talk about consent and we talk through safety and all these different experiences. And my friend and I looked at each other and we're like, what would it be like to be able to come to our parents and, Mm. and say, Hey, here's an experience I'm having. Can you join with me in this? Because I don't know what I'm doing here. And I want to go about it in the safe way. And parents can do so much for their kids by leaning in in that way. What I hear you saying is just, it's not a one and done conversation, right? It's a a conversation that continues and continues and continues at every stage and age. Mm -hmm. And, And whether you're single or married or dating or whatever the thing is, 
how do we have relationships with our kids where there's this openness and mm-hmm. asking questions and being vulnerable and mm-hmm. cuz that's what relationship is. Yeah. It is. It is. Yeah. There's a there's so much more in this book. You talk about grieving uh, well, and talk about how to have healthy connections and relationships. The section on boundaries, again, is really helpful for those of us who uh, weren't taught how to do that, don't intuit it, and even feel guilty for doing it. And then you've got this religious power and control wheel in the appendix that names, mm-hmm. I think, some of the concrete behaviors and artifacts of a high-control religious environment that really is worth the price of the book. I think so many of us are looking for somebody to validate the hunches or intuitions we have that this isn't right. Mm -hmm. Like what's happening to me isn't right. And I think your book Mm -hmm. uh, does validate that. And it does, Mm -hmm. it does, Laura, it's such a gift. So thank you for writing. Um, Thank you. Wow. I appreciate that. Yeah. If if people want to connect with you um, on the internet, um, how can they do that? Are you available? You have a website, right? Yes. So I am, you can find me very easily on social media. Instagram is kind of where I hang out. Apparently I'm supposed to be on TikTok, but I don't get it. Same. Like it doesn't, it yeah. doesn't make Same. sense to me. Same um, I don't so, understand it yeah, at all. Thank yeah. you. So, um, Dr. Laura E. Anderson is my Instagram handle. That is also my website. I'm also the founder of the center for trauma resolution and recovery, which is where we focus on working with folks coming out of high control religions, cults, fundamentalism, purity, culture, adverse religious experiences. We use the coaching model so that we can do things a online. So it doesn't matter where you're at, but also everybody who is a practitioner there has background, has a background in mental health and or advanced training to be able to work with trauma in a trauma informed and trained way. And we, like I said, we specialize with religious trauma and high control religion. So at the very least, you don't have to convince somebody that what you went through was that bad. We Mm. already know it. Um, And that can be really, really helpful. So that's the Center for Trauma Resolution and Recovery. And you can find us on Instagram or our website, which is just traumaresolutionandrecovery.com. Great. Well, the book again is When Religion Hurts You, Healing from Religious Trauma and the Impact of High Control Religion. Uh, Laura, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, yeah, man, she's uh, she's a baller, as they say, mm-hmm. as we, as we say in the business. Yes, I don't know, what, I don't know what business it is, but um, but yeah, uh, that that was good. That was a good interview. Yeah, you know, something I wanted to check with her on. I I noticed that um, we were talking about fawning mm-hmm. as a trauma response. Yeah. And I, I realize one of one of the things that I do instead of being self-aware, mm-hmm. if I f- if my nervous system turns on and I feel unsafe, uh, Ben, you know I do this, but I begin to essentially uh, predict the future, and I right. run worst-case scenario projections of usually relationships. Yes. yes. Um, and then I predict the the worst possible future. Uh-huh. Uh, and then I set about planning on what to do in order to either avoid that or right. handle it. Right, right, <laughs> right. And, right. and, and yeah. then uh, I spent a lot of time in that little uh, alternate alternative timeline time machine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I but I do it because um, some of my trauma has to do with unpredicted, unforeseen things happening that caught me off guard or by surprise mm-hmm. that uh, led to trauma. And so I think my nervous system is like, we can't ever be surprised by harm again. Yeah. You know, we have to, 
we have to have a plan. Vigilance. Yeah, we have to be vigilant. Yeah, yeah. there's a vigilance there. Yeah, which you know, uh, there's which you can't you can't ever relax. Then you know, like that. That's I, I thought it was interesting what she was saying about how our nervous systems are always on guard. Um, but like the traumatized nervous system, it's almost like, um, she didn't use this word, but I've heard other people use this word, like damaged, like injured. It's like your, your nervous system is injured. Yeah. So that there's a, there's a heightened response. That's, that's not necessary. It's not doing its job of keeping you alive. You know, like Mm. it's not just, you know, pumping adrenaline through your body when there's a bear, but it's also pumping adrenaline through your body when there's a loud noise or when there's a, you know, yeah. um, when, you know, when there's any, any situation that reminds you, that reminds your, you know, your body of your nervous system of that, yeah. of that thing that really did hurt you. And that, and that was, um, yeah, your body interpreted as an existential threat. So, yep. yeah. and I, I find, I mean, the question I asked her about, um, about how to, how to lead in those environments, I, you know, it's like I, I was reminded that it's like okay, I know this. What she's saying is the answer, but it's it's fascinating to me how easy it is to get triggered and not realize I'm triggered. You know, and mm. I think it's sort of like even as she was answering that question, I was like, oh man, I have so much more compassion now for people who are like, if I can notice that you're triggered and you don't notice it. I just have a lot of compassion because I'm, I'm realizing I'm like, mm. oh man, this happens to me all the time. Yeah. I get, I get triggered and it's, you know, I don't, I think this, uh, man, it'd be interesting to talk about, um, a lot of different aspects of this because there is some pushback right now. I don't know if you've heard this, but people are like, are we talking about trauma too much? Or are we, you know, are yeah. we saying everything's trauma and like it, it's losing its meaning or, you know, all that kind of thing. And I, I think it's worth talking about because, I think a lot of what people are noticing that they don't think is quite right is usually not quite right. It's what you're noticing is the, the, the using of trauma language to, to do something that's less than empowering for people. Mm. Um, anyway, almost like using trauma as an excuse for bad behavior mm. rather than taking responsibility for yeah. our own healing and saying, yeah. no, I can, I can give myself what I need. I don't need the world around me to conform to non-triggering behaviors. I can, I can actually heal and give myself what I need so that I can actually engage in the world with, with better boundaries and with a sense of well-being. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, this is why I think that the whole conversation about, do we need to focus on trauma less or more? Or, um, if we, if we give space for this trauma, then everybody becomes a victim. Right. And right. 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 I, I honestly, the only way for, people who are committed to harmful, abusive ways of relating, the only way for them to wake up to their abusiveness and to make correction and reparation is for them to reckon with their own trauma. Yes. Hurt people hurt people. And until the people doing damage on others take responsibility for their own trauma, none of this changes. Yeah. None of it. So yeah. until that until that happens, I don't think we can talk about it enough. Then you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's I think that's right, um, and it's an under talked about aspect of all of this. Yeah, that the you know the leaders who do cause harm, uh, yeah, oftentimes it's just this this they don't realize the emotions that are going on under the surface. They don't realize that that they are yeah. triggered. That they feel an existential threat that's not real. 
and that's why they kind of utilize the the power and the authority that they have to yeah to hurt and to harm. It's not that they're vindictive. I mean, some of them might be vindictive, but I, I think the vast majority of leaders who do behave in even abusive ways uh, are often, yeah, just victims of their own trauma in yes. one sense that they're just, they don't see any other way to survive, mm-hmm. but to, but to be this way. Um, and, you know, and that's not to excuse the behavior, but to understand it is actually really helpful. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway. So, well, and Christy, uh, Christy was in this interview, but she had a hard out right right as soon as we ended. So a um, hard out. beloved listener, that's why she's not joining us for this. Right. She promised us, she promised us that she had a joke that she wanted to tell. So she's not here. So Ben, yeah. a weasel walks into a bar mm-hmm. and the bartender says, wow, I've never served a weasel before. What can I get you? Pop goes the weasel. <laughs> nice. That joke. <laughs> That joke works in uh, certain states where that uh, is the yeah. official name for the carbonated beverage. Um, you know, I grew I, up I, did calling you grow it up with Coke. Pop? Coke. You called, you called it Coke. Everything was Coke. Listen, it was like Everything this. Was do you Coke, want something to drink? Yeah. yeah. What do you want? Coke. Okay. What kind? What kind? What kind? Yeah. That, uh, I, I've heard that predominantly in the South. Um, yep. So it's interesting. Indianapolis as well, I guess. Upper Appalachia, they call it. Yeah, it's true. I grew up in Minnesota and Pop. It was, it was Pop. So when we, when I ordered a Coke in a, in Texas and she asked me what kind, I just thought she didn't hear me. <laughs> Coke. That's, yeah. I already told you. Um, anyway. Yeah. All right. Well, pop goes the weasel. Pop goes another episode of the gravity podcast. <laughs> All right. We'll see you next time. Listener. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If you're finding it helpful, we'd love it if you tell your friends about it. Ratings and reviews online also help others find the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Joining our Gravity community is free. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. Our show is produced by Ben Sternke and Matt Tebby. Aaron Sternke edits and mixes the podcast, and you can check out his work at aaronsternke.com. We'd love to hear from you. To record a question or comment for us, go to gravityleadership.com slash message and click the start record button. You can also email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time. special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.